week, if you were here, you know that we began a new preaching series that we call Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And the series itself is a prayer where we're asking God as a church together, would you mature us in prayer? Would you take us and help us to grow in the practice of prayer? So maybe some of you left last week and you left not ready to pray, maybe encouraged by some of it. Some of you might have actually tried to take some baby steps towards prayer. But undoubtedly, one of the things you've either discovered this week or will soon discover is how does prayer work in the midst of a very busy life? You are very busy people. How does prayer work in the midst of a busy life? It's not like you got home and suddenly another hour was added to your day. And so God said, okay, now that I see you're serious about prayer, here's a 25th hour to sort of help you out, right? You've still got all the responsibilities that flood your plate. You've got school and work and kids and responsibilities and homes to pay for. In the midst of all those things, how do you cultivate a praying life, right? How do you pray when you are busy? If we're honest, some of us would say it's not that we don't want to pray. It's just that we're too busy to pray. And then add to that, on top of your busy schedules and busy lives, not to mention the fact that deep down we also struggle, secretly at least, with whether or not prayer is actually the best use of our time. Right? When you sit down to pray, everything in your heart and mind screams, get to work, do something. Right? If you look around, if you sit down to pray, and you look around at all the things that need to get done, it, it's very easy for us to go, look, there's a limited number of hours to the day, and if I'm going to spend my time and energy doing something, you can't help but wonder if you're going to spend those hours and time and energy actually getting something done. I think we'd all say with our lips that prayer is important. No, nobody would come out right and maybe say it's not. But the reality of our schedules, our lives, practically how it plays out is that our lives seem to say that there are many things that are more important. We're convinced prayer is important. We're just not convinced that it's all that important. Or practically at least that there are at least some other things that may be more important. One of them being getting things done, right? We know we've got to get stuff done. That, that marks us, that drives us. I went away for two days last October. I know the kids were going to visit some family in New York, so it was as good a time as any to go away. And so my agenda, I drove down to Maryland, was simply to get away for two days of prayer and planning, hoping to just get ahead of some of the stuff that was happening at the church. And I just wanted to sort of retreat away and Pray and plan and prep for what was coming. Going in, I can tell you that I was scared to death. There was no TV, no internet, no one else, which is very humbling, especially if your job is within your stuff. To have to admit to yourself that you are scared, you're going to be bored to death with just Jesus, a Bible, and you. Right? That sounds good for about 10 minutes. What am I going to do for the next 48 hours? Right? Thankfully, God was very gracious to me and very generous to me and actually led me into a very sweet time of being with the Lord. I feel like I had time to slow down in life and time to connect with God and pray in a way that I had not done in a very long time before. But while I was there, enjoying God, actually just sitting at His feet, just enjoying His presence, with no real agenda other than to be with Jesus, I have to tell you that the entire time there was a war that I was waging in my mind. Questions that kept assaulting me that I had to fight through to preserve that time. Questions like, are you really going to take time out of a, a work day, a day when you 
stuff done when you pray. No one's ever going to believe that you have a real job if that's what you're going to spend your day doing, right? You, are you really going to take time? Or questions like, wouldn't it be much better for you to actually get something done than to simply sit with Jesus and pray? Questions like, I had told some of the guys that I was going away for these two days, and I kept wondering, what would they think of me if I came back and told them that I didn't get X, Y, and Z done because I was sitting with the Lord during that time? You can just feel like, what a bum that sounds like, right? It, it sounds totally against our flesh. Because for me, I'll tell you, maybe you're like me, I know that prayer is important, but deep down, I can't help but feel like it's not the best use of my time. Or that if I've got a choice, and maybe this is you, if you've got a choice between getting something done and simply sitting with Jesus, you're going to get something done. Right? That's the way that we work. And moreover, it's not just what we choose. That seems like the right thing to do. Right? It's not just that's where we drink. That seems like the responsible thing to do the adult-like thing to do, the right thing to do. So wrote, I, I think that God's Word has something really important for us to hear today, something really important that you need to let your soul hear. And that is that Jesus wants you more than he wants your world. Jesus wants you more than he wants your world. Jesus wants to serve you before you serve him. He wants to minister to you and in you before you do ministry for him. Jesus wants you more than he wants the world. Alright? We'll look at that in Luke 10, 38 to 42. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Luke 10. It's the passage from Luke to read for us. While you turn there, let me just pray and ask the Lord for help. Father, we ask that you would now be with us and help us. We are not simply speaking words. We're saying it to a God who hears. So come now and please be with my mouth. Let me both be free and a slave, a slave to your word, constrained by your spirit to not say one more word than you have me to say, but free to follow the promptings of your spirit to know that this is a real moment where God intends to speak to his people and to follow your lead and to speak well your words truthfully, faithfully forgiven the ears of people, that their ears would be open, their hearts would be soft, their minds would be illuminated, their eyes ready to see from your word, hear it, believe it, receive it, and live their lives by it. Do not let us merely hear the word, but do what it says. But this is the glory of Christ. We pray this in the name. It's a short passage, so let me just read it to you again so that you hear it and it's fresh on your mind. This is Luke 10, 38 to 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled by many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. That's the story. 
Some of you have heard it before, but I know this is brand new for some of you, so let me just give you a quick gist of what happened. Basically, you've got these two sisters, Mary and Martha, and Jesus is invited into their home. Some of the other Gospels give us some more of the details that sort of flesh out what's happening here. Like Luke. Luke is not the only one who writes about this. John will tell us that their village is in a town called Bethany. He'll also tell us that they have a brother named Lazarus. But Luke, Luke leaves out all those details because he wants you to focus in on exactly just what happens between these two sisters. Right? Mary and Martha. That's what he wants you to have in view. So Jesus comes over for dinner, and Mary takes a seat assumes a posture, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. Right, so he comes in, and she immediately grabs a spot at his feet, listening to his teaching. Now you need to know that that, what she's doing, is not just some weird custom, she's not just going and sitting on the floor. What she's doing is she's assuming the posture of a disciple. That's what a disciple does. A disciple in that culture would sit at their rabbi's feet. That's what you did. If you had a master, a lord, a rabbi, an instructor, a teacher, you would go and sit at their feet. In fact, the Jewish writing would say that what a disciple does is sit at the feet so that the dust of their master hovers over them and they drink in their master's words. And that's what Mary's ready to do. She's ready to sit at the Lord's feet and she's ready to drink in all that Jesus has to say. In fact, you see the same picture in other passages. In Luke 8, two chapters before, there's a scene with this demoniac man, this man who's possessed by demons. And he's cutting himself, he's hurting himself, and he's hurting other people, and so they have him chained up. And Jesus walks by that way and heals this man so that now he's in a sane mind. And when the town comes to see this man, they see him sitting at Jesus' feet. Because now this man is a disciple of Jesus, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to sit at the Lord's feet. You, you see another example of this in Acts 22. Paul is speaking about, Paul was a man who was Saul before he met Jesus. And when he was talking about his life and talking about his life before Jesus, he talks about how he was educated by a man named Gamaliel. And how does he speak about being Gamaliel's disciple? He says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. That's how he describes himself. Right? And so what Mary's doing is Mary is taking the posture of a disciple to Jesus. Now, I don't have the time to go into this, but I want you to hear that that would have been radically countercultural for a woman to become a disciple of this rabbi. No rabbi would have ever recruited a woman to be their disciple, to allow them to sit at their feet. In fact, there was a saying in the Jewish culture that it would be better for the Torah to be burned than to hand it over to a woman. And, and yet in that culture and in that day, Jesus is welcoming this woman to be his disciple. A disciple would sit and hear their master's teaching so that they could go and do what their master does. And Jesus is inviting, welcoming Mary to that posture, to that life, to that role, to see her Lord and to do what her Lord does in the world. Christianity has been above every worldview for the promotion of the rights of women. And Jesus leads that here. And so Mary takes this posture as a disciple, and so she's sitting in the living room with the men, listening to Jesus talk. Martha, meanwhile, her sister, would have been where women would have been in that day. She was in the kitchen, getting everything ready. Jesus had come over, so she was putting the finishing touches on everything, getting dinner ready, getting the place set up, and she is now in the kitchen working alone. 
The sister is off with the men, listening to Jesus teach, and finally Martha can't take it anymore. So she storms into the living room, and she tells Jesus exactly what's on her mind. She voices her complaint to Jesus, and then sort of the twist of the story is, Jesus commends Mary and corrects Martha. Jesus commends Mary and corrects Martha. That's the story. Very straightforward. You get the story. You know what you're supposed to understand from the story. It's not very complicated. You don't need special theological training to understand the story, right? You can explain it to your kids, and they would understand. By the end of this story, Mary's the good one, Martha's not. Right? If this was a test, Mary passed, she aced it, and Martha died. She failed it. That's what the story's communicating. Now here's the problem. While I know that here and you know that here, it is much harder to accept it here. Because as I hear this story, I feel like Martha's got a bad rap, right? She got the short end of the stick. I feel like I can't help but feel for Martha. In fact, I can't help but side with Martha. And I would guess, if I could take a poll, I would guess you would agree the same way. In fact, I would think that our culture would say the same thing. If you ask a random person in Northeast Philadelphia, if you told them this story, they would tell you, hands down, Martha is the better one, Mary's not. So I would say, if, if, if you were to ask me, no one's asking me, but let me tell you why, I think that I would commend Martha and correct Mary. Let me tell you why I would commend Martha and correct Mary, whereas I wrote in my notes, why I like Martha, Martha and think that Mary's a punk. Right? That's how I wrote my notes. Here's how the story unfolds. Look again at verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered the village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Right off the bat, there's a few things I want to point out that's commendable about Martha. Jesus is going by her village, and she welcomes him into her house. The way that Luke writes this, it gives you the sense that this is whose house? Martha's house. Martha's probably single, she's probably unmarried, but her name is on the deed. This is her place. So that means she is the responsible adult. She's the one paying the bills. She's the one who has a name on the mortgage. She's the adult who owns this house, right? And you can tell just from the whole story that Martha is a doer. That's what she is. You Give something to Martha, she's going to get it done. While Mary's off, you know, prayer walking or journaling or writing bad poetry, Martha is getting something done, right? In fact, the only reason Mary gets to sit at Jesus' feet is because Martha has a home to invite him to. And that's what Martha does. Martha welcomes him into her home. I, I want you to know, while, while Mary's the contemplative, perhaps Titan, you might be exaggerating, Martha's the doer. She gets things done. And, and who of us would say, we're so glad for Martha's? Right? Because they get things done. This guy named Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem about the sons of Mary and the sons of Martha. And the last two lines of his poem basically say that the sons of Mary, they sit around and they smile and they're blessed. They sit at the feet, and if they have a burden, they cast it onto the Lord. And the Lord takes that burden and gives it to the sons of Martha. And they do something with it. That's who Martha is. We love Martha. 
We need one another. Every family, every organization, every business, every church is blessed to have Martha's. And here's what, what else is commendable about her. She's not just task-oriented, like some kind of weird drone that doesn't like people. She's a, a people person, too. She's the one who takes the initiative to welcome Jesus into their home. That's important. Because I don't want you seeing Martha as this pagan unbeliever that wants nothing to do with Jesus and just wants her task. Martha's the one who sees Jesus going by that way and welcomes her in into her home. Right? The only reason this all happens, Mary and all that else will follow, is because of Martha. But what I mean is this. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus ends up forming this great relationship with his family. This is not the only time Jesus would meet with them. This family becomes real close friends to Jesus. Right? Jesus had lots of acquaintances, lots of people in ministry. He had much fewer friends. Martha and Mary and Lazarus were friends. When he was going by, he would stop and stay at their place. Dinner was with them. Conversation was with them. So you have this real intimate relationship between Jesus and his family. And all of that happens because Martha takes the initiative and welcomes him into her home and basically into their life. She loves the Lord and welcomes him into her home. And then what else is going to do is it's obvious that she's got the gift of hospitality. Right? She welcomes him in. Martha's the kind, you, you know the kind of person who if someone's new in church, they're going to make sure that they take them out to lunch or invite them over for dinner. That's who Martha is. If someone's sick, Martha's the first one to sign up on the meal train and bring them a meal. That's who Martha is. When you go to Martha's house, the house is clean, the food is delicious, there's good wine from a bottle, not a box. That's who Martha is, right? You enjoy her company, she's hospitable, she's a doer, she's thoughtful, she's gracious, she's generous. That's Martha. And when Jesus shows up at her house, Martha's hospitality is on full display. Right? The Lord has walked into her, her, her house. She is not going to give him second best. She is going to go all out for Jesus. Martha is busy serving. Now, frankly, she doesn't have the luxury to just sit at Jesus' feet like Mary does. Because if she does, who's going to get anything done? She's got dinner to finish and dessert to, to, to finalize the, the last touches on everything to put. It's not so much that she doesn't want to listen to Jesus. It's just that somebody's got to be the adult, right? And that's going to be Martha. I can almost picture the scene, right? You can picture it with me. The doorbell rings. Martha's in the kitchen. She takes off her apron, fixes herself up quickly, runs to the door, shouts to everyone in the house, he's here, he's here. Mary, would you put down the journal and please set the table? Right? She opens the door. Jesus is so good to have you. She's not just offering fake words. She means it. It's so good to have you. Welcome to our, our home. Thanks for coming. Exchanges a few pleasantries. Has him sit in the living room and says dinner will be ready very shortly. Runs back into the kitchen. Is now fixing up the last five things. Appetizers are ready. Dessert is ready. The entree is almost done. Everything's just about ready. And maybe she says, Mary, would you pass the salt? And she looks, and where's Mary? Sitting with the men outside in the living room at Jesus' feet, listening. Maybe she hops to herself and says, No, I'll, I'll do it myself. 
right? You can just sit there. Not all of us can do that. And she goes about and keeps working and, and making out the pots are climbing and the plates are all over the place and she's making a big noise and finally she cannot take it anymore. Every time she looks back, Mary is just sitting there soaking in his words and she is getting everything ready. Finally, she goes out and she tells Jesus what's on her mind. And even here, I want you to hear, Martha's commendable. She doesn't just sit in the corner and mope all night. She doesn't pout. She doesn't wait till the next day and then gossip about Mary to everyone else. <coughs> she comes and says it exactly like it is. That's what Martha is. She, there's no beating around the bush with Martha. Martha's going to tell you what's on her mind. In another passage, when Jesus comes to Bethany again because Martha's brother Lazarus dies, when Lazarus is dead, Jesus is now about to perform a miracle and have Lazarus come back from the grave. And so he tells them to roll over the stone where the tomb is. And what does Mary and Martha say? Martha says, Lord, I wouldn't do that. He's been dead four days and his body probably stinks. Right? The King James, his body stinking. That's not, that's not polite language. Right? But Martha's going to tell you like this. Jesus, I wouldn't do that. That body's probably a mess. Right? She's just going to tell Jesus what's on her mind. That's who my is. And so now she storms into the room and she says, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Now what's she expecting? She's expecting Jesus to commend her for her beautiful and diligent service and correct Mary and say, Mary, would you get up and please help your sister? And frankly, that's what we're all expecting as well. And that's not what we get. Instead, what we get is Jesus amending Mary and correcting Martha. Why? What's going on here? What is it that we're missing? What is it that Martha is missing? Look again to the text. In verse 40, it says, Mary, uh, Martha had a sister called Mary, and she was sitting at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving. It's interesting the way that Luke said that. Right? We thought that Martha was busy with much serving. The way that Luke says, it's not busyness that the issue here. Martha was distracted with much serving. Like her much serving was keeping her from focusing on what she ought to have been focusing on. Luke doesn't say she was busy with much serving. Luke says she was distracted with much serving. And the irony is that all this work that she was doing for Jesus was the very thing that was keeping her away from Jesus rather than allowing her to be with him. All this stuff that she was doing for Jesus was actually a distraction that was keeping her away from Jesus rather than bringing her to him. Right? And I want you to hear, this is not a critique on secular people, how secular people will give themselves to work too much rather than God. This is a critique to religious people. Because I, I can tell you how easy it is to feel like Jesus will understand that I have no time to be with him because I'm busy doing the work of ministry. You know how easy it is for many of you who are engaged in different works to think, well, the Lord must understand that I cannot sit at his feet because I'm doing all this stuff for the Lord. You see the irony of that? 
that the irony of my ministry is that the very thing that I'm doing for Jesus can often be the thing that keeps me from Jesus rather than bringing me to him. Something's off with Martha here. We think that the reason that she's being kept from Jesus, that she's not spending time with Jesus, is because she's busy. But I want you to hear that for her and for us, busyness is not the primary issue. It's just a symptom of a deeper issue. I, I know that because busier men than us, busier women than us, have made time for God. How do they do that? Is it because their lives were not as busy as ours? I'll give you an example. Martin Luther, the great reformer. Martin Luther, in his lifetime, wore many hats at the same time. He was a professor, a theologian, a writer, a preacher, and many others that, that I can't have time to tell you. His output in his life, I, I want you to hear, is astounding. And, and I haven't even counted all that he's done, but he's written about 15 commentaries or more, over a dozen books, preached numerous sermons, written numbers of hymns that we sing to this day. He translated the Bible into German so that everyone in his day could hear it. And that's not even mentioned that he was the principal player in the whole Protestant Reformation. That whole period that even you study in history that changed the world. This man was so influential, so important, that princes and kings were knocking at his door. This man was busy. And if all that was not enough, he was married and had six children. So he's all of that and he's Tyson's shoulder, right? <laughs> If you are ever complaining about your business, go, what would Tyson do? <laughs> Six kids on top of it, all whom he loved dearly, all whom he had dinner with, all whom he shepherded in the Lord. So he got a massive amount on his plate. Martin Luther used to pray two hours every day. And if he was particularly busy that day, he would make sure to squeeze in three hours. In fact, he's got a quote. He says, I am so busy now that if I did not spend three hours each day in prayer, I could not get through the day. That makes no sense to us. The busier I get, the first thing that should fly off the plate is prayer. And yet, how is it that it was the exact inverse for him that the busier he got, the more he felt the need to pray? What is it? that Martin Luther and Martha gets that we're missing. That Mary gets that we're missing. What is it that they knew that we did? I want to suggest one thing and I want to point out one thing. I want to suggest one of it might be that they had a keen sense of their helplessness. A keen sense of their helplessness. Do you notice that Martha doesn't come to Jesus until when? Until she finally can't take it. And when she's finally at her own wit's end, when she cannot bear it anymore, she comes to the Lord. Because if she can handle everything, she would be in that kitchen till, till the day was done. But it's, it's finally when she gets to the place where she can't handle life that she comes to the Lord. And what <coughs> men like Martin Luther knew, when, when he says, I'm so busy now that I need three hours, it's this idea that they had recognized they could not do life without God. And so their helplessness brought them to God. We have a very confident independence. We can handle life. 
Notice why stuff like cancer is what brings us to the throne. Because God in his grace finally shows us you can't do life. You can't handle life. And that's true for all things. All things. I don't pray about parenting till nothing I'm saying to Hannah gets through. And then finally, when I'm exhausted of all my options, I go, God, help. Because God in his grace brings me to the point where I should have been from the beginning, which is I cannot do this thing apart from you. You don't pray for your marriage until all is lost, and then you go, God, please help. You got them saved. Because till that time, we've got this inordinate amount of confidence that we can handle life. And that they had a sense of helplessness. We'll talk through that more in the next week as we talk about praying our children. But, but here's something else that I want you to see, and I think this is what's hardwired into Martha's heart and hardwired into ours as well. Look at verse 40 again. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Here's what I want to suggest. Martha values getting stuff done more than she values sitting at Jesus' feet. And she is convinced that Jesus values the same thing. That Jesus values her work more than he values her. So she's seeing herself wrong, and she's seeing God wrong. Here's what I mean. If you gave Martha a choice between sitting with Jesus and working for Jesus, she's going to work for Jesus. You hear that again? And many of you would say the same thing. If I gave you a choice between sitting with Jesus, leisurely, no agenda other than to sit at his feet, and working for Jesus, Go to Psalm 18 Challenge. Go to a mission trip. Go do this. Go do that. If I told you sit with Jesus or work for Jesus, we would work for Jesus and we would assume that's what Jesus values as well. We value it and we think that's what Jesus values as well because we're convinced Jesus wants our work more than he wants us. Martha is working so hard. Here's the other thing. She's getting stuff so much done that she's offended by those around her who are not doing it the way that she is. She's so convinced she's right that she's ticked that Mary doesn't see it the way that she does. And that Jesus doesn't see it the way that she does. She's so convinced that she's right that she's annoyed at Mary for not being diligent and dutiful like she is. And then she's even offended that the Lord doesn't see it that way. How could he not know that what I'm doing is better than what she's doing? Martha's identity, her sense of self-worth, her righteousness, a lot of it is tied up in her productivity. And some of us, some of you, me, we're the same way. We've got to get stuff done. And we've got to stay busy because that's the right thing to do and that's what makes me better than everyone else. You would never say it that way. But deep down in your heart, I'm better than so-and-so because I get stuff done. And I'm beautiful. And I'm diligent. If we in these weeks are going to grow in prayer, if we're going to be Martha after we've been married, and that's what I want you to hear. I'm not saying Martha's wrong. I'm saying be married and then be Martha. One pastor said that we need Mary's heart and Martha's hands. Right? It's not that 
but we need Mary's heart first. If we're going to be that, if we're going to grow in prayer, I want you to hear this. The problem is not primarily with your business. It's not your schedule. The way you're praying life in a busy life is not just your schedule. And here's why I know that's true. You know how at the beginning I said, God didn't give you a 25th hour now that you want to pray? If you were honest, then God did give you another hour. You would work. Or you wasted. If God gave you another hour, I know that would not make me suddenly pray more. Because the problem is not my schedule. And it's not just my busyness. It's what I value in my heart. And that's why I want you to hear, if we're going to get better at prayer in these 15 weeks, then it's not going to be that I give you some tips or some new disciplines that you didn't know. You need a new heart. You're going to need the gospel. You're going to need Jesus to give you a new heart if we're going to be a praying If it was just some tips and disciplines, I could point you to a book and that's all we need. God has to change your value system. God has to change what you treasure. And that can only happen as the Spirit works in your heart. Our prayerlessness is not going to be fixed with a few tips or a new discipline. We need God to change our heart. We need to repent that we've been treasuring other stuff over Jesus. We need to repent that we find more identity in the works of our hands than in the finished work of Jesus' hands. All the work that God required, Jesus did. Again, I want to say, when Jesus was dying on the cross, his last words were, it is finished. What's finished? The work that God has entrusted him to do. The work of salvation. Everything God needed us to do, Jesus said, is finished. So you don't have to work to impress God. Jesus impressed God for you. You need only receive a righteousness that comes not by the works of your hands, by the works of His hands. Your identity does not come from what you get done. Your identity comes and is fixed and rooted in what Jesus got done for you. You are not better than your neighbor for doing more. You are righteous solely because Jesus finished the work for you and gave that righteousness to you. And you will not be more righteous on your most productive day or less righteous on your least productive day. And hear this, it's not just that you see yourself wrong, that you judge yourself based on what you do or in comparison to others. It's that you see Jesus wrong. Jesus wants you more than he wants your work. He wants you more than he wants your work. If your heart needs to change, I want to close with this. Don't despair. There's good news. Because look at how Jesus responds to Martha. Look at verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. Listen to how Jesus responds. He starts by saying, Martha, Martha. I love that in this passage. Jesus calls her name twice because it's this call of emotion and tenderness and love. There are other parts in Luke where Jesus will say a name twice. Let me tell you the truth. Jesus will stand over the city of Jerusalem and weep that the people there do not believe him. Weeping with a heart broken for them. And he literally says, oh, how I wish Jerusalem to gather you like
like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. And when he starts saying that, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Right? Weeping in his heart, tender, brokenhearted for the city. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. The other time he says it in Luke is when he's talking to Simon Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sit you like me, but I have prayed for you. So when he says that name twice to Simon, what's he saying? It's, it's with a heart of love, with a heart of care. He's saying, Simon, Simon, Satan wants to get at you, but I am praying for you. And with that same tenderness and with that love, he says, Martha, Martha. I love that because if your life is prayerless and you love the Lord and you're trying, but your life is prayerless, Jesus is not coming at your throat today. He's not angry. He's not condemning you. He's not speaking to Martha like he does to the Pharisees or to the crowds. He speaks to her like a friend that he loves. He says, Martha, Martha. Right? He's speaking with tenderness. I don't know how he said those two words. I wish I could hear the phone. Maybe he said Martha, Martha in, in, in a joking sort of way to two friends. Maybe he said it with tenderness. Maybe he said it with tears. I, I don't know. I do know that he said this correction in such a way that their relationship was not strained, but only deepened. You know how I know? Because Jesus keeps going back to this house. And Martha keeps going back to Jesus. And Martha feels free with Jesus. In fact, when her brother Lazarus dies later on, when Jesus comes by, Martha's the first one out of the house, and Martha says to Jesus, very straight, like they have a relationship, Lord, if you had come, my brother would not have died. I love that Martha could do that. Even after hearing this correction, it's not that she's pushed away, she's drawn in closer, so that when Christ came and he comes by, she says, why didn't you come? If you had come, you wouldn't have died. And they have a very tender conversation. Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Right here, all along, we thought Martha was the good, beautiful, diligent one. And just hear the adjectives that describe Martha throughout the story. She's distracted, she's anxious, she's troubled. Does that mark your life? If I were to ask, how does your life look right now? Is it anxious and troubled and distracted? And again, the irony is, she's thinking all of this is for Jesus. And Jesus wants to say, that's not the life I want for you. Right? The irony is, all of this is for Jesus, and yet the result is this anxious, troubled, distracted life. You, you can picture a child. If mom or dad cannot spend time with their child because they're too busy working to provide, to give them the good life. Right? So that... Finally, a distracted, anxious, troubled parent finally interacts with the child and blurts out, don't you see that all of this is for you? I'm doing all this work for you. If the child could speak back and say, for me, I don't want any of this. I just want you. Right? Which child wouldn't say, I would take you over all this stuff. And Jesus said the same thing. Jesus wants you more than he wants your work. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. 
Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. When Jesus says the good portion, it's almost like this word play. Because the good portion, you think about good portion in terms of a meal, right? In fact, that word could almost be translated best dish. And so the word play Jesus is using is, Martha, you've been tirelessly trying to get me the best dish, but I gave the best dish to Mary. And it will not be taken from her. Right? You've been tirelessly working to try and get me the best dish, and the best dish has already gone to Mary because she sat with me and soaked in time with me, and it will not be taken from her. So, dear friends, where are you this morning? Would you hear Jesus inviting you? Seven mile road, seven mile road. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Choose the good portion. That's Jesus. He's the good portion. And it will not be taken from you. Let's pray. Thank you. 